sometimes. The best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 257. Before NCAA Regionals kicks off next week for the men, I'm thrilled to welcome John Fields, head coach of the University of Texas men's golf team, to the back of the range. Now, we did talk about his present team led by Cole Hammer, Travis Vick, Mason Nome, and the Cootie brothers as they prepare to head to Norman, Oklahoma for regionals, but I just couldn't help diving back into the history books to ask Coach Fields about some of his previous teams and his own start in the game at the University of New Mexico. This one is full of some great stories, awesome takeaways for juniors and parents. Really, this is one of those episodes that hits all sorts of topics, and all that I needed to do was just stay out of the way and let Coach Fields share some wisdom from his 30-plus years of coaching. Along with capturing the national championship in 2012, Fields has nine NCAA top five finishes, 13 finishes in the top 10, eight Big 12 championships, 60 wins, and he's a two-time National Coach of the Year. We're going to jump right into this episode in just a second, but make sure that you're following the back of the range on social media. Lots of announcements coming your way soon. One that was just announced a couple days ago is that I'll be providing content coverage at the Dogwood Invitational next month at Druid Hills, just outside of Atlanta. One of the most historic amateur championships in the country. I will have more information regarding that tournament and my entire summer schedule very soon. So again, follow on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Everything is available at thebackoftherange.com. Let's get to this week's episode. Coach Fields, thanks for the time. Welcome to the Back of the Range. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Uh, we're excited about the rest of this season and looking forward to this interview. You do a great job. Uh, I know you've had other guys on our team. Let's get after it. I've enjoyed following this team. Um, enjoyed, obviously, the the Cooties and Hammer and, and Mr. Vic. And and we'll get to Coach Abear a little bit later. I, I do have him in my notes here. we gotta, we got to get to the bottom of something. But uh, for now, uh, you know, we're talking really, you know, early may we're heading into that time of the year where every college team and every college coach really kind of pins their ears back because it's it's time for regionals and we'll talk a little bit about this team but um i i gotta you know let me get a question out of the way that maybe is a little bit unfair but you know i don't want to paint you in the corner right away but you have this long list of ut golf alums on speed dial and we can talk spieth and scheffler and uh, Hostler, and, and we can go down the line, uh, you know, Vegas. This is a time where maybe you, you get someone on the phone to come talk to your team to get them ready and geared up for the postseason. Who would be the first person that you would call? Who's someone that really kind of would have the pulse of this team to really get the message across? I know it's completely unfair, but why not? Let's see it. No, I, we've got some great, great people. And, and for me, I access a lot of my own mentors i probably have four or five or six sure people in my life that i talk to from time to time when i'm making decisions or uh when i'm uh considering different uh aspects of our team and maybe i don't have what i would conclude as an answer 
So I would, I would check in with them. If I was going to have uh, one of the, one of our alumni that, that, uh, that would stick out in our guys' minds and, and have credibility immediately. Uh, the first one that comes to my mind is Ben Crenshaw. Oh, and, yeah. oh yeah. And part of that reason is, is just simply because that, that guy won three NCAA championships and two team championships. We did that in 2012. I can remember, um, having the guys, on the driving range prior to us getting ready to fly out that afternoon to Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Austin. And I asked Ben to come out that morning and he did. And, you know, in Ben Crenshaw terms, he, we saw him walking down kind of the path to, to get to us. And the guys were hitting golf balls. I don't think they knew generally who it was just then, you know, cause he's, he's smaller than he was, uh, when he was on on the PGA tour, but he was walking down. He had shorts on. He had flip flops on, and oh, had a nice God. golf shirt on. And <laughs> he walked over to the guys on the range, and and everybody said hello, and and they were excited to see him. And basically, they all got around him in kind of a circle. And uh, uh, he said some really interesting things to us. And and one of the one of the really cool things for Ben was that he and Bill Core had been at the crux of doing some work at Riviera where we were going to go play. Of course. And he spent some time out in California every summer, uh, at the beach. And, um, he knew the winds that we were going to be confronted with. He kind of filled the guys in on Riviera why he thought it was a special place. And he talked to him about some of the, the modifications that he'd made to the golf course. And, he was just sensational. I mean, he was everything that coach would want to be. And he looked at all of them and he said, you know what? I, I want you guys to know that I really like this team. Oh. He said, I, I like this team because nobody's trying to be the other guy. Nobody's, um, nobody is um, trying to, swing like the other guy nobody's trying to play golf like the other guy i just like you because uh you're wanting to be your own guy and i think that's the way it needs to be and he said i really feel good about this team going out oh there my God. i mean he's just and channeling 99 rider cup he's hypnotizing him correct them. and he did say that he said i got a good feeling about oh, you guys God, forget it. it's over yeah and uh and you know we, it was tough we we were confronted with um a, a really rough second day out there in the in the metal play and and then they came back with a fantastic final round jordan shot under par that last round and um and then we went through washington uh we were able to beat them five and oh then we were confronted with a really really good oregon team coached by a great coach in casey martin and uh we beat them three and two and then we got to Alabama, and there were some extraordinary things that happened that day. But the bottom line is we won the national championship. And when we got word that we were going to fly back that night on, on a private jet, which was really nice, we needed to do that because Jordan and, and Dylan were going to play in uh, U.S. Open qualifying in Houston sure. the very next morning. So the turnaround time was pretty tough. 
but uh, they lit the tower for us here at, in uh, on, on campus. Uh, we have a famous tower, and they lighted orange when you win a national championship, and they put a one down the middle on the lights. And uh, and Ben, Ben and Julie were the first two out there to, oh. to see that. So it, there's there's a lot of people that bleed orange, but nobody more than Ben Crenshaw or Tom Kite or jo- Justin. Leonard or Jordan Spieth, Mark Brooks, golly, they're just a bunch of them. And, and now Scotty Scheffler. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're looking and, and obviously you're looking to recapture that feeling this year when you, when you go through regionals and, and try and get yourself set up at Greyhawk and, you know, believe it or not, we're, this is actually the 10 year anniversary of that win at Riviera is the first uh, national championship since uh, that you've won since 1972. And as, I mean, this is, I can't think of many more celebrations in college golf that stand out more or, you know, you mentioned, you know, Googling it, looking it up. And if you look up a national championship putt, I mean, Fratelli making a 30 footer to win on 18 at Riviera. And then I love just the, the, you know, famously goes berserk. And I've watched this replay probably 50 times. Like it's the Sapruder film. And for those of you too young to know what the hell that is, go look it up. Stop making coach fields. And I feel old about knowing that, but Dylan makes the putt, loses the putter, loses the hat, loses the glasses, then gets mobbed. And I think I see Spieth and Vegas in there. I think I see Ryan Murphy, your assistant at the time in there. And then a bear coach a bear comes strolling in with a sweater draped across his shoulders like he just arrived from a photo shoot on rodeo drive but i didn't see you i think gribble's coming up 18 fairway where where were you in this mob scene because i'm having trouble picking up where you were at well i was i was a victim of of texas as an as a as a coach and what i mean by that is um had a lot of pressure on me. Uh, a lot of people don't know, but my contract was up in 2012. It oh was, um, uh, I, it had not been renewed and, and that was at the end of a five-year term. That's very unusual for a coach unless the ADs may be thinking about making a change. And I'm not saying that he was, but my contract was up and they, they told me after the second round at the regional that we were going to, that, that they were going to renew my contract. And, you know, they, they also told me that it was kind of a neat time because uh, your team's number one in the country and see how it flows out. But there was a lot of pressure going into that regional. Sure. The reason you're asking me where I was, I was about 250 pounds. I'm not that anymore. And, I, you know, some people lose a lot of weight when they're under pressure. I, I gained weight, and um, it was just a, a very pressurized time for me. The, the 2000 six through 11 time frame was really, really tough. And then it all came together. And obviously we got a great player in, in Jordan Spieth, who was basically the, 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 the one that served the drink, but I was down on the right side rushing after I wanted to go down and see Cody Gribble because if Cody Gribble doesn't win his match, it doesn't matter what sure. Dylan's telling but Cody hit a great wedge on 17 to about three feet and made birdie and, and won his match. So I immediately took off running, but I wasn't going to go up that hill because I might have a heart attack. And <laughs> Cody ran up that hill and he had just beaten his opponent. And uh, the funny thing was, is that he looked at that guy and that guy looked at him and Cody said, I'm not going to let you beat me at this race either. So he, they were, they took off running down up the fairway. Right. On, 
18. And I was behind my son, uh, Marshall, who was about 15 to 20 paces ahead of me. And I was basically about halfway up uh, number 18. But you can't see the green from where I was. I took a less steep path, kind of the cart path. And so I was about halfway up and I heard this magnificent roar. So I knew something special had happened. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I wonder if that was Alabama or if that was us. Right. And then I thought, no, I know that there is way more Texas fans. And that was really loud. And so I thought, you know what? I think we just won the national championship. And when I got up there, I could see all the commotion of what you were talking about. And so I joined later, but uh, that's what I was doing. And uh, about a year later, I, I uh, went on a diet and, and dropped most of that weight. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, part of me feels bad that you weren't right there in the mix and in the and in the kind of the, the dog pile, so to speak, when they really were celebrating. But then another part of me thinks maybe it's nice that you had a special moment by yourself to really appreciate it before all the commotion. Did you remember maybe just those first couple of moments of thinking, wow, we really did this and maybe the weight coming off your shoulders in a, in a private moment? I did. And, and my daughter and son had flown in Marshall and April and they were, they were in their mid twenties already. So they, they flew in from different areas and my, my wife was there with us and she was one of the first to, to be in the dog pile with, with <laughs> Dylan. When Dylan bent down, she was one of the first and she was, that's a great moment. That's a great Yeah. Moment. It kind of makes me emotional right now. It's funny, but, uh, she was one of the first ones to, to, uh, to greet Dylan and pat him on the back. And you can imagine, I mean, the stress for a coach who, especially at Texas, there's, there's a few programs in America like ours where you really don't know what, what the next day holds for you sometimes. And, and this was one of them. And, and, uh, so for my entire family, that was, that was really something. Yeah. Well, I, I know we're going to talk a lot about this current team, but I got to backtrack a little bit. I mean, you played your collegiate golf at the university of New Mexico and, uh, and, you know, ended up coaching there for 10 years, had a great run. But, you know, we live in this digital age where everyone has a camera in their pocket, and which also means they're able to broadcast images and video to the world in a matter of seconds. And I know your guys are very tech savvy. They know how to navigate social media. But I got to ask you a question. You're playing college golf at the University of New Mexico, not really worried about you, not really worried about Tom or Kurt Byram. But if Twitter and Instagram were a thing back in the late 70s and early 80s, when a young Tommy Armour III was playing college golf, would would he just break the internet? I'm just thinking uh, all the great stories that come out about him now. Can you imagine or fathom if he was living in that age? Yeah, everywhere we went. Well, first of all, <laughs> um, Kurt Byron was one of my original teammates, and then Tommy came a year later as a, as a junior college transfer. Sure. And, uh, Kurt Byron was a show stop show stopper. He was a, a great looking guy, uh, fantastic build, really, really competitive golfer. He had been recruited division one basketball and division one football and decided to play golf. And, uh, 
tried to get Oklahoma State to pay attention to him, and they wouldn't, and that's why he came to New Mexico. And we were blessed with an unbelievable uh, group of guys, but he was a heck of a leader. And then his brother came the following year, and, and he wasn't a particular great golfer at the time, but nobody knew how hard those guys were going to work, and they ended up getting on tour and winning on tour, and now Tom's had a great career as a as a champion tour player plus Kurt has been great on the golf channel but Tommy Armour the third I always thought that he was a throwback to a Walter Hagen yeah. maybe one of those guys that you know lived his life as large as he possibly could had fun every night um uh, and and uh, really didn't have a whole lot of boundaries the one thing that stood apart from for him was how prepared he was when he stepped into the arena, when he was ready to play golf. So we might have a curfew, let's say at 1030 at night, coach wanted us to be in or maybe 11 or whatever. And, and Tommy would do that. And then what he would do is he would get his golf clubs ready for the next day at leather grips. So he would always uh, get them ready. He would do the saddle soap and sure. be tacky and ready to go and laid out. And, um, he would get his clothes out and get those ready and, and they would always be pressed and perfect. And then when 11 o'clock rolled around, he would uh, be out the door and having fun and he might not come back till three or four in the morning. But, but if we had an early tea time, seven 30, let's say, or eight 30, that guy was ready to rock when it was time for him to go. And he was a great player, but he lived so large and he always has, and he still does today. And I, I love the fact that I, got to be a little bit a part of his life just because I don't know that there's many people that have had more fun in their life than Tommy Armand the third. And you're right. If he had social media or oh. the NIL today, that guy would have been a millionaire in, in college. <laughs> I mean, talk about a great follow on Twitter or Instagram. Good oh my God. Oh, I mean, just living vicariously through TV. Well, every, every, everywhere we went, um, if we went out, all the girls would be watching Kurt Byram. And if we went to a golf course, everybody would be talking to Tommy Armour the third, and it wouldn't be long before two or three uh, interviews would develop. And, and there, there would uh, be a nice story in the, in the paper about whatever golf tournament we were playing. And then there'd be a half a page about Tommy Armour the third. I mean, nobody better. That's the best way to do it. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, no, it was a fun group, and those guys could really play. I was never nearly as good as Kurt Byram or or Tom Byram or uh, Tommy Armour III. Those guys were really good, and they won. All of them won on tour. Yeah. So you played um, – gosh, that's so cool. So you played uh, You played a little bit of uh, – played professionally for a year over or in the European tour, but then you come back and, you know, you get your Class A, so you're, you're a PGA of America member. And, you know, then at some time you, you take over the job at New Mexico in 87. And was there a moment where you felt perhaps being a teaching pro wasn't the right fit? Or maybe was there that moment during your time at New Mexico where there was that light bulb moment where you said, wow, I, I, I'm a coach. I, maybe I didn't think I was going to be a coach, but this is really the path in my life. Do you have that moment in, in, your, in your past history where you realized – this is really what I need to be doing. I, I really wanted to be a player. Yeah. And, um, and I, I played for a year and Earl was my caddy and 
we spent more money than we made. And so I, I, what I did was I was intending to go, go back to Europe, but, uh, I had a friend in Southern Arizona that, that was the head pro at a golf course there. And he had been the head pro at my hometown country club. And, and, uh, I called him up and said, Hey, can I come work for you for a little while? And he said, sure, come on down. So I, I thought, well, I'll work for six months, um, in those like, October, November, December, January, February timeframe, and then go back to Europe. Well, in the meantime, we got pregnant, girl got pregnant, and I had seen so many disasters in, in life with regards to pros who, that, you know, might have three or four marriages and kids yeah. all over the place, and I thought, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I knew that I wasn't quite good enough. I watched... In 1983, when I was on the European tour, Seve Ballesteros, Greg Norman, Nick Faldo, Ian Woosnam, Bernard Langer, uh, Alotha the Ball, uh, they were all full-time, Sandy Lyle, and they were just light years better than I was. And I wasn't going to stay out there and be a journeyman. And so anyway, I decided to get in the business of golf after we got pregnant and I stayed there. Then I started working at a place called Mesa del Sol, which was a, a residential resort golf course. About two and a half years later, I got my class A. And about that time, Dwayne Knight uh, left New Mexico to go to UNLV. So that was uh, the summer of 87. At New Mexico, I started trying to get that job. And December 1st, 1987, they, they hired me. And then I can remember going and sitting in Dwayne's office, which was now my office. He left some uh, pro select Wilson staff golf balls. <laughs> they were in the, and he took everything else. There was no, there was no um, recruiting information. There was no nothing. And, and I talked to one of my mentors at the time and I said, man, there's nothing in here. And I'm like, what am I going to do now? I have no idea what, where to start. And, uh, he said, well, remember one thing, Dwayne Knight is, is not your coach anymore. Dwayne Knight is not your, um, is not your friend anymore. Uh, we, we still are going to be, have a great relationship, but he said, he's an adversary. Yeah, he's a rival. But adversaries don't give information to other adversaries so that they can beat you. So you need to go start asking questions and doing things. And so what I did was, is I started asking questions of other coaches that I knew. And that kind of led me to Mike Holder at Oklahoma State. And that really gave me a lot of unbelievable information. Then I started doing his camps. And that was wonderful. And uh, I did that for almost seven years. Prior to that, I had done 30. 3,000 golf lessons, either group lessons or individual lessons in my time as a golf professional. And so I felt like I could do this job. But what I found out was, is that it was more about fundraising than it was about, it wasn't really about coaching. So a, a large percentage of my time was fundraising. So what I did was refer back to my professional days, because the hardest thing to do is raise money for yourself. Right. And I had already done that to get myself to the European tour. I wasn't using my money. I was using other people's monies as sponsors. And um, so I, I had that in my back pocket. And, I, and the, the funniest thing that jumps out to me, Ben, is that I was playing in a particular tournament on, in Europe. And uh, Pearl was my caddy. And we were sitting around one afternoon. And 
there was a caddy named Silly Billy. And at the time, a lot of these guys were, the caddies were older guys. They were, uh, they all had nicknames and they, um, they, they might even be kind of um, philosophers a little bit. And Silly Billy, I never forget this. He asked me, he said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I want to be really good at, at golf. And I'd like to make a really good living. And then I'd like to give back to kids and give them a better opportunity than I had. He said, well, you better be careful about what you ask for because you might just get it. And I did. <laughs> but not the way I thought I was. Yeah, well, I mean, he was... But but I mean, as you said, he's a, a you know a prophet. He's a he's a philosopher. It it, it, it absolutely happened exactly the way he said it would. Um, yeah, amazing. You you spent so you go to Texas and in your first year. Now we've talked obviously you know Crenshaw and, and Spieth and all these these Texas you know legends. But you know you set your first year at Texas. You know, great first season, four top tens, and. You know, you're you're talking about pressure. I mean, you're inheriting a team coached by uh, by Coach Clayton. I mean, eventual Hall of Famer, and he had tons of success in the Southwestern Conference, which is what Texas was playing at the time. But you inherit a team that has the top amateur in the world, or the eventual top amateur in the world, Brad Elder. I know legacy runs really deep, and there's a lot of history at Texas. But outside of what he did for you on the golf course, how vital was it for you to have a player like Brad Elder on your very first team at Texas? Well, it was, it was challenging because it really, yeah, I got the job because, because there, there had been some stress in the program. And, mm-hmm. and um, when I took the team over, we were the 51st ranked team in the country. So what had happened was a couple of players had left or were getting ready to leave. And then, Brad was absolutely a great player. He played in the Walker Cup. Pearl and I went and watched him play that the summer that I got hired. Uh, he played in the U.S. Amateur and got to the semifinals and decided to come back to Texas, which was really nice. But right before the very first tournament, which was uh, going back to Albuquerque, the Tucker tournament, um, we got news that his wrist was really hurting him, and we found out that he had Kindbox disease which was his right wrist, the, the lunate bone in his right wrist was uh, not getting any blood. There was yeah. a little crack. And, and uh, we had to go all over the country to try to fix that. In the meantime, our team wasn't very good. And it was, we were getting 10th and 12th and 13th place finishes. And I was out recruiting too, but I, I remember going with Brad to the United States Olympic um area in Colorado to see the doctors there and we went to several different places and our athletic department paid for all of it and then we finally saw Dr. Jim Andrews who was uh, the guy that did the first Tommy John surgery in Alabama and he's the one that fixed Brad thank God and and so Brad came back in December January time frame and he just lit it up he played great golf and then he uh, we did we didn't make it to the NCAA that year but what we did do is uh, what Jimmy did do for me, he left me a bunch of scholarships. So I recruited what was called the Fab Five at the time. We got David Gossett, who was number one junior in America, uh, John Clock, who was number two junior in America. We got Russell Serber, who was like number seven, Matt Brost, who was number 11, and then Cully Berrigan, who was in the top 20. 
And uh, I remember Golf Week said, you know, that we'd gotten the Fab Five, and we immediately turned it around and started winning golf tournaments. David Gossett was exceptional. And uh, from there, there, there was a lot of twists and turns, and things kind of rode for us. We finished third, fourth, and fifth in the NCAAs, like 2002, three, and four. We won uh, five big 12s in a row in that time frame as well. And um, amazingly enough, though, then we got into the build of the golf course here at UT Golf Club, and we were up and running in 2003, but 2001, 2002, when we were in the build of the golf course, um, I kind of took my eye off the ball. And, and for college golf, really any sport in, in collegiate athletics, recruiting is the number one thing that you have to do successfully. I always tell people, if, if I recruit well, my wife's happy. If I recruit well, my boss is happy. If I recruit well, uh, my alumni are happy. Yeah. If I recruit well, my donors and my supporters are happy. If I don't recruit well, you're talking to another coach. So how do you evaluate talent? I mean, you mentioned you know Gossett. I'm guessing that's really was one of your big first blue chip recruits along with the other uh, members of that Fab Five. I mean, he's a, like you said, top-ranked junior in the country, and he was a two-time All-American, eventually wins the U.S. Amateur. But, like, now the the pool of talent is so deep. I mean, I'm out there just as, I mean, not as much as you are, but I'm out there all the time. And just it seems like every kid is big and strong. Everyone's hitting at 300. And is it is it harder for you now to maybe narrow down who you're going after than maybe it was, you know, even 10, 15 years ago? Well... You, you need to recruit anywhere from five to 10 guys to get one because everybody's going to have great choices, yeah. scholarship issues, all kinds of different things. It could be a regional thing. There, there's so many different aspects to it, but Dick McGuire, who was Dwayne Knight's predecessor at New Mexico, I followed Dwayne and then uh, JT Higgins followed me and then Glenn Milliken followed him. But the bottom line is, is that Dick McGuire told me uh, really as a coach he was the coach and the retired coach at New Mexico when I was a player and I talked to him oddly enough I talked to him about what he did as a coach and he said I, I always recruit winners he said it could be the South Dakota State High School champion it could be the U.S. junior champion but I like recruiting winners guys who have won and that kind of left an indelible mark on me so I like recruiting kids that have won. Not everybody has the opportunity to get out on the national or international level, but I love to, to recruit kids who have won, at least on the state level. And I like, you know, what the uh, American Junior Golf Association has done with kids and over over so many years. Uh, and then there's so many state golf associations that are doing fantastic work. And then internationally, you have these junior teams that are just fantastic. People ask me all the time, why are these guys going out on tour and having success at such a young age? And why has the, the uh, average age of a rookie dropped so much from, let's say, 30 years old 20 years ago to more like the mid-20s now? And the, the reason is it's kind of a culmination of all the different aspects of these junior programs and high school programs and uh, international junior programs that have developed 
and and it just keeps going it just keeps adding to itself and so that's why you get a guy like scotty scheffler that he won the u.s junior there's no question about it and he did some fantastic things as a junior he also did some great things as a college golfer but who knew that he would go out and and win four in a row these last few months and and become the number one number one college or number one pro in, a, in the world and and then win a masters as well i think we all believed that he might do that someday but we didn't know it would happen so fast and so i i just think it's really the culmination and so what i try to do is i re- try to recruit winners and i guess this probably would this question would probably apply more to spieth um than scheffler just because it's it's been a longer time since spieth uh you know a little more of a lead into it but you know, with Scotty's Masters win being so recent, but what uh, what do these major successes from your former players do for your program? And I, are are there tangible results to it? I mean, obviously, it adds to the list of of accomplishments and adds another, you know, uh, a major title to the program, another win, you know, top ranking in the world, things like that. But I mean, what kind of energy does it add to the program when you know Spieth wins a, an Open Championship or makes a run at a Grand Slam or you know Scotty goes in this run that he just went on? What kind of buzz does that add to the program? Well, the number one thing it does is it allows us to continue to grow. So okay. we have the University of Texas Golf Club, but just like any entity that's trying to have success. You're, you're either going forwards or you're going backwards. And we, we always like to think that we're going to get a little better every year. So we're the, the success of our tour players has allowed us to continue to modify and accentuate and enhance our University of Texas Golf Club. So today's look at the University of Texas Golf Club is a far cry from what it was in 2003. So I'm just absolutely thrilled at where we are today but there's a burr under my saddle to keep making it better so that's one because i would tell you that jordan spieth and scotty scheffler in particular and and others would never have come here had we not had the ut golf club and the access that we have and the the facilities that we have but every one of those guys is constantly bringing me ideas about what we could do better here and that's you got to listen and we want to do that and we want to hear that so what it does is it allows me to cr- recruit uh, sensational people, but it it comes with the the idea that we're always trying to get better. So that two things: one, we can prepare our guys that that are here better, and that we can uh, be out front. And it's hard to be out front in college golf these days because everybody's wanting to get better, yeah. and there are so many fine facilities that that these schools have developed. And I think athletic directors have uh, honed in on the idea that golf's important. Golf really is important because a lot of the people that they go to as donors love the game and they're really proud of their golf programs. And uh, so every day I get up, I I'm excited about trying to, to be the best we can be here. And uh, so truthfully, and it gets right on back to recruiting. Yeah. What what are I'm curious? You mentioned they they bring back ideas for how the the UT golf club can get better. I mean, I'm sure that you get tons and tons of ideas, and some have been implemented and some have not. But is there maybe one that you can 
you know, quickly share like one concept or idea that, that maybe Spieth or Scheffler or, or um, you know, Hostler or any one of the, your former players has come back and said, you know, it'd be really great around here. Is, is there one you can think of? Yeah. I mean, our, our, our Spieth lower 40, which is uh, our six hole short course that Jordan helped us design and helped, helped uh, um, monetize. I mean, he, he gave us the ideas about how those greens should be and, and the, the approaches and all the different things that went into that golf course. Uh, Roy Bechtel designed it, but, but Jordan was right in the middle of it and really took a, a hand in it. And the funny thing about that, Ben, is when it came up, when it came online, there was several different articles about the Spieth lower 40. Sure. Remember we're at Steiner ranch. So there's a lot of times there's a, a, a lower 40 acres on ranches. And so the UT golf club is that that's where the idea came from. There's more to it, but bottom line is, is that it's called the speed lower 40. It's a six hole short course with unbelievable greens, neat approaches, a uh, lot of great mounding and all those ideas came from Jordan. And, and, uh, and so it's gone from there and we're wanting to kind of redo our short game area. And we've added trees to our range to, uh, provide corridors and right, right. It's just it's just so much better than it was, and it's going to get be better next year than it is today. Let's talk about the team that actually gets to enjoy the the, the facility at this present time. Um, we we talked yesterday before we were setting this up today. Uh, I think I remember right. You said you're exactly where you want to be, but maybe the journey could have been a little less stressful, a little bit more of the norm. Is that kind of kind of accurate to what we talked about yesterday? Yeah, I told John Paul the other day, I said, coaching these guys and coaching in particular the Cooties, and I love them. I yeah. think they are two of the greatest guys in the world, and, and Cole Hammer's there and Vic and Mason Nome. But uh, coaching the Cooties, they, they're, they're unbelievably hard workers. And, and when I say that, I don't take that lightly because I've been around some incredibly hard yeah. workers like, like the Byron brothers. And, but I told him, I was talking again to John Paul Aber, my assistant. I said, I feel like a fisherman on a raft with no sides. And I've reeled in these two big fish that are maybe two of the best fish in the world. And I got to somehow, all I've got is my fishing pole and my hands. And I got to keep these two fish on the, on the raft. Uh -huh. And, and that is everything you can do on a daily basis. It's funny. The analogy is funny because it's, if anybody's held onto a fish, you know what I'm talking about. They're, they're moving around. They're not, they're not just lying there. They're, they're trying to get off that boat. And it's not that these guys are trying to get off the boat. It's just that they work so hard. You have to be careful with their bodies. They're so competitive. Everybody knows they, they ran into a wall. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> man, oh you beat gosh. you beat me to it. I had a great pun. Yeah. I had a great pun set up. Like you caught some bad breaks this spring, but you beat me to the pun. I can't believe it. Well, they did, and and uh, we were all there with our mouths open and our jaws dropping, and we didn't anticipate, and that's on us. But it's hard to believe, you know, that they were in a they were in a relay race and. The other three guys on their teams individually, so it was four, two four-man teams, sure. with the anchors being Parker and Pearson Cootie, and uh, 
You're supposed to run down, touch the wall, come back, slow down, touch the wall. That's what we were anticipating. They did the first half of that, <laughs> but they were so close together and neither one of them wanted to lose. And so they launched themselves into the wall. They didn't just run into the wall. And, and simultaneously, they, they both uh, fractured the radial tip of their right elbow. And it was so incredibly, incredibly unbelievable because there was no way to anticipate that two human beings would lose their minds collectively into a competitive vibe that was so deep and and not worry about anything else at that moment other than winning right and that's what that's what culminated it's funny because i was at a basketball game not two weeks later and tom tom can be tom kite uh he'll tell you what he's thinking and he's not <laughs> affected so i was kind of i wanted to go over and say hi to him i'm like uh oh, maybe i shouldn't and it and then he and then he brought the subject up of the cooties when i walked over and he said hello to him and and I said, uh, you know, Tom, I, I didn't anticipate. And he said, Coach, it's wonderful to have guys like that. They're going to heal. And he said, it's wonderful to have guys like that that are so competitive. And he said, you know what, Coach? You live by the gun, you die by the gun. Yeah. That had, so. I mean, that had, like like you just mentioned, I mean, you just told the story of exactly what happened perfectly and and. Um, I mean, it's very well known in the college golf circles where you have basically, you know, two of the top stars of one of the top programs in the country have this freak accident. And, you know, you can laugh about it now a little bit because obviously they've both healed up and not only physically, but, you know, they're performing great on the course. You know, Pearson wins right out of the gate at the Haskins with, with obviously the team winning the title as well. Parker at a top 10 and he just... He just got through U.S. Open locals by making two hole-in-ones in the same round. So I think we can we can say that they're back. But at the present time, and and I also love the story that apparently, if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, both Pearson and Parker do all the MRIs and the EKGs and all the testing, get it all figured out, and then they call home to tell their their parents, Kyle and, and Debbie, what happened. Was did did you know they were going to wait, or was that like what were the 24, 48 hours after the accident? We did. Uh, we wanted to have all the information. Sure. Before we called mom and dad, uh, um, and so that's what we were going to do. And and I was going to make the call. And uh, as a coach, they're my responsibility. Sure. I take responsibility for that. But the bottom line is, I it's so funny because I talked to both of them, and they said, Coach please let us tell our dad. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. This is my responsibility. I, I need to, I need to take responsibility and I need to make the call. It's going to be tough, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> they said, please, please let us do it. And I'm like, why do you guys feel so strongly? And they just said, coach, we just need to do this. We need to tell them ourselves that this is what happened. Coach, it's, it's not your fault. We did this. We want to make the call. And I'm like, man, they felt so strongly about it. I said, okay, well, you make the call, but you tell your dad that I wanted to make the call. And then you tell him, as soon as you get off the phone, I'm going to call him. Right. And uh, so we did that. And and uh, it's a, it's an extraordinary family. And it hasn't yeah. been for um, Debbie and Kyle raising them and, and having grandpa you know, be a master's champion and all those things. Oh, sure. Um, 
when you when you just look at it, if you left the chapter about running into a wall out, then you would just kind of see all this different success that they've had and that each one steps above each other from time to time. So in other words, it's almost like they're on a staircase. One will hit a step and the other one will lag behind for a moment and then jump that step and go to the next one. And then it's just been a continual process up. I believe they're going to have great careers on the PJ tour. They, they're going to work so hard. They will get it done. Oh yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very excited to see what, uh, what the future holds for both of them. And, and you, you mentioned Kyle and Debbie. I mean, you know, I'm at a lot of junior tournaments this past year and bumped into some parents and overheard some comments. And I see a lot of nervous parents out there and, you know, you're obviously recruiting the player. They're the ones that, you know, believe it or not, the, the player is the one that hits the shots that, that has to sink the putts. Um, you know, as much as the mom and dad want to get out there and do it, they can't, but I mean, they, they have to be probably the, the dream parent scenario for a college coach like yourself. How do you, I mean, how do you kind of maybe set the parents off on the right foot with the start of their son, I guess, or daughter, it applies to both, but how do you start the parents off on the right path to actually enjoy their son or daughter's collegiate golf career when you're in that, in that, in, in that recruiting process? Yeah, that's great. It, it really doesn't happen in the, process it happens when we it happens when we get them on campus okay and that's when we go to our first tournament and and normally my wife travels with us and so she's not in the game with us and to so to speak so in other words coach a bear and i are either walking with our players or on par threes or, or doing something right helpful to our players so we're not walking with the parents but my wife tries to walk three or four holes with each player on a daily basis which means she's going to encountered our parents and uh, she has great conversations oh, with them and i would say that my wife is uh she's she's a coach's coach and she's been my coach and she she is very helpful to, to them to help process what's what's happening out there even though they're very very knowledgeable and right. and she loves these kids and, and the parents just as much as i do and then the other side of that is having a guy like john paul who can, who is really, really, really adept at talking with parents and giving them the strength to, to make good decisions, to allow their kids to continue to grow. Uh, that may be talking about calming down. That may be talking about the way they talk to their kids. That may be talking about a lot of different things. But I would say this, Ben, I've been best blessed with some unbelievable players but we've also been blessed beyond that with some great, great parents. And I know that because I've been a parent myself and I know some of the things that they go through. And I would tell you that pound for pound, I would put our parents up against any program because they're just absolutely great people across the board. Yep. Yep. I would, I would have to agree with that. I've, I've run into several uh, but yeah, I, I just that when I read that story about, but, but I'm glad you elaborated on, on the messaging to, uh, to the cooties about, uh, Mr. And Mrs. Cootie about the injury. Cause that's, uh, that is, uh, that is hysterical. Um, you have, I know that one of your goals is to not only have these kids play great for you at Texas, but you want them to be winners on the tour. You just said about the cooties and obviously, you know, Cole Hammer's moving on and, and eventually your other players will be moving on and playing professionally as well. 
But with the way that that college golf has grown over the last several years, you know, more and more PGA Tour exemptions and Corn Ferry Tour exemptions are being granted. I mean, you know, Parker won Southern Highlands. He got into the Shriners and Pearson and Cole just grabbed exemptions at uh, at Haskins the, to 3M and Valspar. How do you find that balance? Because this is a big thing. How do you find that balance of, you know, encouraging their professional dreams while also getting the most out of them while they're actually on campus playing for Texas? I think you just have to be holistic in your approach with regards to building a, a great team. It starts with recruiting, obviously, and you've sure. got to get great players. You, you cannot win the Kentucky Derby with a jackass. You gotta, you gotta be, you gotta have rate. And so that's one. And then giving them a platform to be the type of player they are, and then creating opportunities so that they can grow as a player, grow their ego, so that when they get out on tour, they match up. And uh, so I, we rarely get in the way of any opportunities. The only way we would do that is if it was a conflict with a. Uh, conference regionals or nationals sure. and you know, whether it's a walker cup or whether it's a tour event or whether it's a u.s open doesn't really matter and we try to help fund those where the ncaa allows us to to pay for uh, national championships and that sort of thing it's just it's the new aspect of collegiate golf and and it's one of those things that um in my opinion Sometimes people will ask me, well, do you like that? It, and I would say, I, I love it. And I have learned to love it because it's what we do. And if you don't love what we do, you need to get out. So that's what we do. I, I would allude on one other thing, and that is both Coach Bear and I gave it a shot to try to be great professionals or, or be a professional golfer on the PGA Tour. Neither one of us made it. We, he gave it a better shot than I did. And as, as a result, our why, why what we, why, you know, you hear the buzzword all the time. What, what's your why? Yeah. Well, our why, our why, the reason we do what we do is because we didn't make it as players. And so we want to give the kids that play for us the best opportunity to make it out on the PGA Tour and to win and have a great career. So everything we do on a daily basis, start to finish, is about creating opportunities, creating a platform, and building their games and egos to match up with the guys that they're going to play against, the best players in the world. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, yeah, and you're right. It is kind of a new, it's the new reality where, you know, and I think it's great too. We're getting more of these younger players. I love seeing college golf on, on, uh, on TV, whether it's, uh, you know, you know, seeing the national championship and seeing regular season events on golf channel and, and having more coverage of the U S amateur and seeing more tournaments being streamed. I think it's, a, it's great to, to, you know, add this and, you know, you're, you're getting ready to uh, get to that part of the year where the national championship comes, but you kind of have one more final thing that needs to be done first, which is regionals. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, matching them up against the best players in the world. Well, rivalries are such an important and exciting part of collegiate athletics, you know, whether it's UNC Duke and basketball or USC, UCLA and football, there's, there's Oklahoma and Texas. And, you know, you're, you're well aware that Oklahoma has had their share of success against you this year, but, you know, you're going to regionals, you're going to Oklahoma, their home course, because at the base level, every team in that at that regional has the same goal. Get in the top five, advance to Greyhawk, and settle it in the desert. Does this regional have 
does it have special meaning to you and your team? Do you use the OU rivalry as extra motivation, or do you perhaps downplay it to avoid distractions? I mean, how? I mean, because ultimately, like I said, you got it's just top five. So, how do you approach this one? Well, yeah, as you know, first of all, uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama was right supposed to be the site for this particular regional. We would not likely have gone to that regional, but Alabama doesn't make the tournament this year. Um, JC will is a great coach. Their team just had a down year and they didn't make it. And then they got black algae on some of their greens and they weren't able to host. So it was just like a double whammy for them. Next thing you know, the NCAA decides, well, the fairest way to do this is to award, the tournament to the number one team in the country. So that's what they did. They gave it to Oklahoma. We're the seventh seed. We're supposed to go where the sixth seed goes, which is Pepperdine. So we were thinking we were going to go to, we were going to go either to West Palm beach at PJ national or Yale. So that's kind of what we had decided because that's how the NCAA has done it for the last 10 years. But for this year, for some reason, I don't know what it was. They decided to send us to OU. And I think, to be honest with you, and I'm a believer, I think it's a God thing because I don't think that you could send us to any other place in America that would capture more um, competitiveness for us. And and Ryan Hibble and the University of Oklahoma deserve to be ranked number one. They are clearly the best team all year long. They've done a great job. And he's done a great job, but we're looking forward to going up there. Well, you have these uh, these three guys that are getting ready to leave after this season. Obviously, you want them to to make that next jump. I mean, Cole and and the Cooties were part of that runner up team in nine, in 2019, and then which feels like an just feels like an absolute lifetime ago due to mainly due to COVID. Um, right. I mean, it's it's so crazy. I mean, I just remember that picture of them sitting on the back of the cart, just laughing like freshmen. And, and, and here we are, they're, they're seniors. Um, do you, I mean, do you sense maybe on this team a sense of urgency? I mean, obviously you don't need to remind them of the fact that this is the last run at a, at a, at a title, but, you know, do you sense that on this team? And how do you, you know, how do you kind of allay those, that tension if there is any? They, they've built towards this. Uh, but we're either going to play well or we're not. That's all there is to it. Yeah. So, we might as well dream about the things that we want to do and uh, and and believe that things are going to work out the way they need to. And we've worked really hard to get ourselves in position. Uh, I feel like I have the uh, the ability to, to be a good co- coach these next few weeks. And I think these guys have the ability to be some of the best players in the nation. So, again, we're looking forward to the end of this year. We're looking forward to going up to OU we won't look past that there's another tournament after that but we're going to go take care of business and then we'll go from there coach I really I really appreciate the time uh, I know that it's it's a busy time of year it's kind of ramping up for, as we said for postseason but I greatly appreciate the time wish you the best at regionals and look forward to uh, hopefully seeing you out at Greyhawk and uh, I know how you're going to end this episode with, with with the way you always do so I'll, I'll, I'll let you say it go ahead Welcome horns. Love you guys. <laughs> and there you have it. Special thanks to Coach John Fields of the University of Texas men's golf team for joining me this week 
at the back of the range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Every single episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you next time here at the Back of the Range.